morning. It's a joy and an honor for me to be able to open God's Word with you today. In doing so, I want us to start by considering what many believe to be the greatest question one will ever ask themselves. How can a person be right with God? It is the supreme question of this life, and every Protestant, every sincere Protestant, Catholic, Muslim, Hindu, or Buddhist, will ask themselves this very question. It is why religion exists, because people seek to be right with the God that they believe to be God. How else can a person escape the idea of life having no meaning? A sense of lostness, a sense of guilt, a sense of emptiness, or a sense of cosmic loneliness. There's an annual survey that estimates how many U.S. adults hold a biblical worldview. George Barna directs this survey through Arizona Christian University each year, and it surveys approximately 2,000 adults from all ethnicities and walks of life. The 2020 American Worldview Inventory highlights some discouraging findings. We can see up on the slide here that 80% of U.S. adults believe in God or some sort of higher power. Now that 80% breaks down into 56% uh, believe in the God of the Bible and 24% are on the higher power or spiritual force. Next bullet, 63% of U.S. adults say that having some type of religious faith is more important than which faith a person aligns with. 68% of people who call themselves Christians embrace that same idea of eh, any faith is okay, just as long as you have one. A few more stats here. 58% of U.S. adults say there's no absolute moral truth. 59% say the Bible's not the authoritative and true word of God. 69% say people are basically good. Uh, I think those people live in a cave, possibly. But 48% say if a person is generally good or does enough good things during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. So you might ask yourself, what's happening in the American church? Well, let's look at the survey results from one more survey completed earlier this year in, in February and March regarding Christian pastors who possess a biblical worldview. In this survey, there were 1,000 pastors from across 30 denominations, all the ones you've heard of, uh, and they were asked a series of 52 questions related to a biblical worldview. 
And as you look at this chart, every statistic on it is depressing and concerning, isn't it? Especially when I, what caught my eye was our next generation of believers is being taught by children's and youth pastors where only 12% of them hold a biblical worldview. Now, I did slightly modify this chart um, to update it based on East White Oak staff. So it, <laughs> it, it looks more promising, doesn't it? <clears throat> Amen. Yeah, and so the next time you see one of our pastors, thank them for remaining steadfast in their biblical worldview, even though so many churches of America fail to treasure and teach the Word of God. It's also a good reminder as we're going through this uh, search process for a new associate pastor of youth that the pool of qualified candidates gets smaller and smaller with each, with each passing year. So please keep that in prayer because it's a challenging process. So you will recall that very first slide indicated that 80% of our friends and neighbors, coworkers and family members believe in God or some sort of higher power. And every religion in the world offers an answer to that question of how can I be right with God? And the religions of the world tell people they can be right with God if they do certain things based on their human effort. It is always, always the religion of human achievement. It's always the religion of works, the religion of self, the religion of human activity. A person who believes they can work their way to heaven, believes that because they, they think there's something good inside of them and they can just replicate these building blocks of, of good things, good works, and make those blocks grow and grow and grow until God accepts them or those blocks at least outweigh the less savory aspects of their life. Now, the Bible demonstrates that a person can be right with God, but not on the basis of anything that person does. And in that, Christianity is distinct from every other religion in the world. In fact, there are really only two religions in the whole world. The religion of human achievement, and that really encompasses every other religion in the world. At the core, they're basically the same. And that is in contrast to the religion of divine accomplishment. And that alone is Christianity. So the Bible clearly teaches that a person can be right with God, but they can't be right with God on their own terms. A person can't make themselves right with God from their efforts. 
what you may learn for the first time this morning or be reminded of and encouraged by is that if we are to be right with God, it's going to have to happen on God's end. Now, to understand the need to be right with God, we're going to have to start this morning in Romans 3, 19 and 20. You can look it up or we'll put it on the slide up here as well. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The first thing I want to point out at these verses, these two verses are essentially the end of the Apostle Paul's previous train of thought, which began clear back in chapter 1, verse 18. From that point... Paul launches into this long, lengthy exposure, 62 verses worth of human sinfulness. And this approach by Paul, where he makes the people aware of their situation, is a sound tactic. Because until people are persuaded of their lost condition, they're not likely to be concerned about deliverance. As Christ himself observed in Matthew 9, 12, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. People never value a remedy until they're aware of their disease. They must understand that they're condemned by the law before they will receive with gratitude the good news of the gospel. And so we come to this climactic portion of Paul's reasoning regarding our sinfulness under the law here in 19 and 20. And it feels a bit dark and foreboding. And we're left with three implications. One, everybody in the whole world is guilty. You're guilty, I'm guilty. Everybody in our families are guilty. Everybody in our schools, our work, and everybody in our church is guilty. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, we're all guilty before God. We are the sick that Christ referred to in Matthew. Second implication, no one anywhere in the world will be able to raise a legitimate Objection against God's judgment. Every mouth will be stopped according to verse 19. Third implication. Paul has established our fatal situation beyond any question or doubt. That no person ever has or ever will be able to justify themselves in the presence of of God. And while the law proves that we are condemned, 
it does not bring us our pardon. It was Martin Luther who said that the function of the law is not to justify, but to terrify. So we arrive at the end of verse 20 in a completely hopeless predicament. And it's absolutely critical that each one of us understands the hopelessness of our situation. If you want to spend your life trying to make yourself right with God, from your end, all you're going to do is justify God's judgment because you can't keep the law. You can't live up to the law. And that puts mankind in an impossible situation. And that is our human dilemma. So having come to this point, the question we're, we're led to ask ourselves is, is there no hope for us? Can nothing be done for us? Are we, are we irretrievably doomed? The Apostle Paul goes on to answer that question, and you will notice he does so by two words, two little words. And there they are in verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 21. But now, but now. One could venture to say there are no more vital words in the entire Bible than these two put together. The argument of Paul's writing up till now has emphasized that everyone's a sinner and therefore stands under the judgment of God. But now, God has intervened. Our human predicament has been radically transformed because of the saving act of God in Christ, which Paul proceeds to develop. And this is not the only time that Paul uses this approach. There are several other dramatic, but now type of situations in Scripture. We're going to look at a couple of them. If you want to turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, or you can read it up here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among them, we, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I'm reminded of the idea here that even the largest of doors turn on a relatively small hinge. And Paul opens the large doorway here in today's passage from hopelessly mired in sin to the offering 
of righteousness in the small phrase of, but now. First Corinthians 15, 16 through 20. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those, who, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Once again, the large doorway from despairing to rejoicing is opened by Paul's use of but in fact. And in this morning's passage, the dismal picture of our sinfulness and hopeless state is interrupted by one of the greatest uses of the conjunction but in all of Scripture. How thankful we should be for this small grammatical hinge which opens the door to God's merciful, gracious intervention to save us from destroying ourselves. Let's go back and look now at Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Aha. So verse 21 says there is a divine righteousness, a God-sent God-given righteousness that is not through the works of the law. But, verse 22 says, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness apart from human character. Righteousness that comes from God upon an ungodly human race. Righteousness that will save a thief on the cross. Righteousness that is prepared for you and me. Righteousness that we must choose, must choose by abandoning any hope of salvation from anything that is in us or that we can produce. In other words, God's solution to the problem of sin and condemnation in those 62 verses from Romans 1.18 through 3.20 is for God to send his son Jesus to die for sin, which we'll see in, in verse 24, and to give us his own righteousness. If, if we will trust in his son. This is called justification by faith. God's reckoning his righteousness as our righteousness if 
we will trust his son. Next, we want to look at verses 23 and 24. Verse 23 there, you'll see, gives the universal need for every human being. And verse 24 gives the all-sufficient remedy for that need. What these two verses say is more important for your future than any self-help book you're ever going to read. These are the words of God spoken through the Apostle Paul. They tell us our true condition as human beings. And they tell us what God has done to save those who put their trust in his son Jesus. Now, if you build your life on these verses, if the truth of these verses becomes the foundation for your life, you will be unshakable in the storms of life. There are some truths that are so foundational and so central that you should memorize them, meditate on them, bind them to your heart and mind. Many people who, who claim to be followers of Christ uh, are very weak and amble through their days pretty much like unbelievers because they don't hold on to these verses the same way a drowning person would grab hold of a rescuer's arm. So let's look at that universal need in verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not a lot of wiggle room in that verse, is there? All of us have sinned. No exceptions. And that was really one of the main points of Romans 1.18 through 3.20. And as a result of those sins, we have fallen short of God's glory. So sin is essentially the rejection of God and his glory as the supreme value in our lives. When we value something in the world more than we value God, that's sin. Sin considers God and his glory, and instead of loving and treasuring God's glory, sin exchanges God's glory for something else. The reason we exist and everything else exists is to display the greatness of the perfections of God. The reason there is so much dysfunction and misery in the world is because the world is in rebellion against the purpose of the world. It shouldn't surprise us that if the world was designed by God to display his glory and the human race is intent on glorifying everything else except God, there's going to be tremendous misery and upheaval in the world. We have traded it away. We have loved 
other things more. And so we have treated God and his glory with indifference and occasional lukewarm attention on Sundays. Therefore, each of us has a massive problem. How do we get right with God and be saved from this condition of sin? How shall we ever be accepted in eternity by God when all we've done is ridicule his infinite worth? Now, not everyone has sinned to the same degree, but none of us have any capability to get anywhere close to the standard that God has established. And that is clearly highlighted in verse 23, right? The, the glory of God in that verse, which we have fallen woefully short of, is simply a way to define the righteousness of God, the perfection of God, the absolute holiness of God. To fall short means to be in need of or to lack. It refers to a condition where we don't have anything. Zero resources. The financial equivalent of that term is insolvent, meaning that we're unable to pay the debts that we owe. We fail to live up to God's glorious holy standard. But God can redeem us because everybody's in the same boat. And if God can redeem anybody, he can redeem everybody who comes to him in faith. Moving on to verse 24, it's an awesome verse because it's all about what God has done to save us, not what we do to try and save ourselves. You remember that this section of Romans began with that great turn in verse 21, but now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Some great event happened that demonstrated the righteousness of God. Not the legal righteousness of the law that condemns sinners, but the free gift of righteousness that justifies sinners. So what is the great event? What happened in history that makes Paul say, now, now the righteousness of God has been manifested? Verse 24 tells us what that great event is and what its effects are. Reading here in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is the heart of the gospel right there. There is no way around this. Any religion that says you make any contribution to your salvation is a false gospel. This is all about what God has done to save us and how he did it. 
We need to see this, think about it, pray about it, and honestly, just marvel at it. Now, verse 24 breaks down into four nicely bite-sized pieces that we can move through fairly quickly in the next 90 minutes, okay? <laughs> the ESV mo- that most of us use uh, uses the word are justified, where some other uh, versions like New American Standard and King James uses being justified. And being justified, I actually preferred it um, to help my understanding with this verse, so we're just going to use being justified. But consider that phrase, being justified. Notice three things about it. First, the verb is passive. (laughs) Now, I know what you're thinking. It's a Sunday morning, and this goofball's up in the pulpit talking about verb tenses, which you never liked or possibly even understood in high school, let alone in church years or decades later. And I feel your pain. English wasn't real fun for me. But words have meaning, and this one is critical to your eternal destiny. So give me a few minutes to bring it home for you. The phrase here is being justified, not justifying. We're not doing it. It's being done to us. Justifying is something that God does, not something that we do. We are being justified. God is justifying. He's the actor here, and we're the ones being acted upon. This is the way that salvation is. It is finally and decisively the act of God the Father. Second, notice that the word inside the word justified is the word just. Now that one's pretty easy to understand. No tense there. Now if you were so inclined, you could do this really long and deep study of the Greek for the word justified. But knowing that you've already got a problem with verb tenses, um, I'm going to save you the legwork and tell you what I found. The Greek word dekaiao, as used here in Romans, means to declare a person to be righteous before God. In salvation, dekaiao describes the legal act whereby God declares the believing sinner righteous on the basis of the blood of Christ. And just to be clear, that justification is not, is not an act of God that makes us righteous. It's an act of God that declares us righteous. It's actually a legal or a forensic term in the Greek. When verse 22 says that God's righteousness is through faith 
for all who believe, it means that the righteousness is counted as ours. So God's act of justification, excuse me, is not inside of us, but outside of us. It's not in us, it's for us. It is not a change in our nature or state, but a change in our standing before God. We possess a righteous standing that we could never achieve on our own. And it's not the same as sanctification, right? Which, which does change us, right? Sanctification uh, changes our character. It's the work of the, the Spirit of God molding and shaping us into the image of His Son. Justification is the act of God once for all, declaring us just and righteous in his sight. The second part of that verse, by his grace. And what is this grace? Undeserved favor? Unearned kindness? It means that though we don't deserve it, though we haven't earned it, God treats us as if we're righteous. How does he do that? By granting to us his righteousness. This is a stunning reality. And this is the distinctiveness of the Christian gospel. Any ambiguity or doublespeak on this, and you have cut the heart out of Christianity. The next bullet point, as a gift... Verse 24 indicates that this great act is done for us as a gift. Being justified as a gift. So it's not a matter of wages or merit, but is a free gift that originates in the benevolent grace of God. It means that being, it means that we're being justified without any prior conditions being met. When we understand the meaning of the word gift here, we can see the true basis of our salvation. There is absolutely nothing within us that could ever qualify us before God. He gives salvation to people who deserve hell. There is not one person in heaven who deserved heaven except the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who merited heaven. But a large company of people who merited hell are going to be in heaven simply because the grace of God decided that they should be there. But the gift wasn't cheap. While this salvation, this, this righteousness with God is separate from the law, built on revelation, acquired by faith, provided for all, given freely through grace, it required a great, tremendous price. And that's the fourth part of this verse. So Paul teaches 
that God's grace inclined him, makes him inclined to, to justify sinners. Not because of any merit in us, but because God is gracious and chooses to demonstrate his grace toward us. But can God simply, by a decision of his will, without any intentional action on his part, can he do that? Not according to this verse, because Paul goes on to explain that sinners can be pronounced righteous because God has taken specific action to provide redemption through the redemption. Christ Jesus is our Redeemer. And which, even though that word is not used in the New Testament, it's found at least 19 times in the Old Testament. The central theme of redemption in Scripture is that God has taken the initiative to act compassionately on behalf of those, us, who are powerless to help themselves. The New Testament makes it clear that divine redemption includes God's identification with humanity in its plight and liberating humankind through the obedience, suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus goes to the cross, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, and he became sin for us. That is, God treated Christ as if Christ had committed our sins, and God punished him fully with all of his wrath. And Christ bore all the wrath of God on the cross for all the sins for all who would ever believe. And God was satisfied. God publicly displayed Christ as his propitiation. And we receive the gift, he says again, through faith. And that is the Christian gospel. This is the truth that saves. You receive the gift by faith. You can't earn it. Faith saves because it looks entirely on what God has done for believers in Christ. It rests on Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins and his resurrection for the sake of the believer's justification. Please recognize that these passages are some of the most important in the whole Bible and it's not just because I'm standing up here preaching them today. Fail to comprehend their true meaning and you will be in darkness concerning most of Scripture. But understand them and you will understand the whole Bible. Let's pray. Father, it's simply not about 
what we've done, but about what you've done for us. Let that truth penetrate our hearts this morning. We thank you that you've met us in your word and redeemed us by your gift of Jesus Christ. And you've not just saved us, but you've made us sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ. Thank you for that righteousness. Help us to live up to it. And we pray also for those, Lord, who are still trying to do it on their own, still playing the game with the scales, trying to make sure the good outweighs the bad and hoping it's enough. May they be driven to a place in their life where they see clearly that by their deeds they will not be justified. They will not be right with God. For that can only happen through faith in Jesus Christ. To that end, we pray that all here might be right with you. That's in the matchless name of Christ that we ask. Amen.